0: Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa Peter, how are you today?
1: I'm in a winter wonderland, so I'm great.
0: I am happy to be talking about movies with friends on a snow day. Boo, snow. All right, first up in controversies and non uh, the NFL decided to put a playoff game exclusively on a streaming channel. And people are upset. Uh, Peacock, the streaming service owned by NBC Universal that is subscribed to by around 30 million folks, paid an eye-popping $100 million for exclusive streaming rights for one of the wild card games last weekend. Uh, that wound up being the Chiefs-Dolphin game that gave them a nice little bonus appearance by pop sensation Taylor Swift. I'm sure NBC was thrilled about that. Uh, and it led to a lot of grumbling by NFL fans who realized somewhat belatedly that the game was going to be streaming on Peacock and only on Peacock unlike other games on NBC that simulcast on NBC and on Peacock. All right, so there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth. The the, the Wall Street Journal referred to it as the NFL's digital butt fumble. Ha <laughs> ha, everybody remembers the butt fumble, right? Uh, it, particularly on social media, which is the preferred location for Lamentations. Uh, Twitter users were, as is their wont, rapidly oscillating between outrage. Can you believe I have to download this app? It is six dollars. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And mockery, like, LOL. You think think all the boomers are calling their kids for advice on how to watch this, LOL? All right, but judging by all the muttering, you'd assume this is some sort of unprecedented outrage. NFL never gonna be... On streaming, is always going to be over the airwaves, right? Unprecedented. Of course, this is not at all unprecedented. Thursday night football has shifted exclusively to prime video. But yes, that's just a crappy Thursday game. The NFL would never put a paywall on playoff games, right? I'm like, I'm sorry. What do you think ESPN is? Ten years ago, the NFL put a playoff game on ESPN, which, as it did here, led to much gnashing of teeth and rending of garments um, and all that. Good stuff. Uh, I'll be honest, the, the Peacock wall, uh, the, the outrage over it doesn't make much sense to me because the Peacock wall is so much easier to scale than the ESPN wall was, right? So getting Peacock on your TV required instantly downloading an app to your smart TV uh, and paying $6, which isn't that much of a burden, given that 70%, 74% of homes have a smart TV. Uh, but you know, even if you don't have a smart TV, you run out, you get a Roku stick right or a fire stick or whatever you, you download it you get the service right getting ESPN for the first time if you were one of the families that did not have cable or a satellite dish you wanted to get ESPN so you could watch the football game that would have involved a weeks-long process you would have had to call a cable company to come out and install the system it would have cost hundreds or maybe thousands of dollars depending on which plan you signed up for uh for a year-long contract right with whichever awful cable or satellite company you were forced to use um I I, I'm just I'm not I'm not I'm not swayed by the argument here. And it didn't really put too much of a damper on the audience. In a press release trumpeting their success, NBC Universal announced that it was the most live streamed event in history. I think there was a there was like a little snippet of data in there that 30 percent of all United States uh, uh, Internet traffic was dedicated to the streaming of this game, which is kind of a (laughs) fascinating little uh, number. Uh, There was an average of 23 million views across Peacock. Uh, local broadcast affiliates, and NFL.com, I'm sorry, uh, 23 million viewers, the total number of viewers was 27.6 million. Uh, And those numbers aren't that far off of the average of wildcard viewers last year, when the six games averaged about 28.4 million viewers. No word yet on how many signups this led to, or more importantly, maybe how many of those signups immediately dropped the service after the game ended, but I'm sure we'll get that data uh, in the coming weeks here. Alyssa, here is my opening question. I, I want to I look at this from a slightly different angle. What do you think is the percentage of people who complained about Peacock having this game who also spent years saying they wished that they could just pay for the channels they wanted to on cable?
1: You're asking me to do math? No, I do just a football I didn't ballpark. sign up for this podcast just, to do math. Just just a ball, um, just
0: like you know, if you're if you're sitting here I mean, thinking about what people are complaining about, and that's what I spend most of my time thinking about. I don't know you, no know well, about and you. Then what,
1: and then also, what percentage of the people complaining about it were never really that interested in watching the football game, right? Um, Which is, you know the The ratio of people complaining about a thing online to the people who are actually genuinely invested in the thing that they're they're complaining about is also always an interesting calculation to do. Um, I'd say fifteen percent, if only because the number of people who think cord cutting is a good idea and have been thinking that for a long time has always been smaller proportional to their to their volume. Um, so yeah, look, I think. The reason this is interesting is we're in this weird in-between point between the shift away from the cable bundle towards a fully streaming economy and the sort of reconstitution of the bundle on streaming. If in fact that's actually the thing that's going to happen, like I remain convinced that it's entirely possible that the streaming system kind of falls apart because the economics make no sense. And then we have to have some sort of weird galumping migration back to the cable bundle. But You know, this is less about the NFL's power, which is considerable, or the inconvenience of, you know, games sort of splitting across these platforms than about the fact that we're just in this weird in-between space and it's not totally clear how the media ecosystem is going to shake out, not merely across sort of platforms, but across what are technically different media.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Peter, this is this. Uh, there was some. I, I saw somebody on Twitter who was like, "Why would the NFL do this? Why would the NFL do this?" And I'll tell you why the NFL did this. I I explained it already. the The NFL got a check for a hundred million dollars. They got a nine figure check to broadcast one game. Uh, and that is why they did it. And the NFL has always been used this way. It's an interesting little uh, uh nugget on the formation of Fox when Fox became a broadcast channel. It was one of the first broadcast channels. One of the things that Rupert Murdoch did when he was, you know, building, standing up these channels across the country was overpay for NFL rights. And people at the time were like, this is insane. You're spending too much money on this. You'll never make it back on advertising. And what he said was, uh, yes, but I need people to watch the channels. And the way we get them to watch the channels is by having sports, because there's only one NFL. There's only one NFL in this country, and it is what people watch. So, I, I mean, look, it makes perfect sense for Peacock, right?
2: Yes, I think this obviously makes sense for streamers. I think that if you're mad about this, well, guess what? This is what you get for enjoying football. Never understood you people. I have always thought you were crazy. Like what? But even look, forget my personal issues here. What do people think that the NFL exists for? It's not to give away the games for free as like an act of social solidarity to bring people together. This is the last thing that everybody that like most people in most households are like Something close to a plurality actually care about, and like, no, that's not why it exists. They exist to get millions and millions and millions of dollars delivered to them in large trucks. And this was an opportunity to get millions of. It wasn't actually in large trucks, as far as I know, but like dump trucks full of money is the reason why. And if you are an NFL fan, like ultimately your fandom will be put in service of that. That's how it works. That's also like. I, I don't even say that as, as a criticism. That's great. That's how entertainment works. That That's how the NFL persists and expands and keeps doing more stuff. Keeps being the NFL for you, for you people who enjoy watching. Bl-
1: we just want sports. Roger Goodell to be able to Scrooge McDuckett forever uh, <laughs> and just vast swimming pools full of gold coins. Um, and you
2: guys, you guys, you sports fans, you have no idea how good it is for you right now because this was $6 and you can refund it or cancel it after a day or whatever. But like, just imagine 20 years from now, frankly, seven years from now, when like the whatever the Dallas Cowboys, that's a team, the Dallas Cowboys, I think. Yes. Right. When the Dallas Cowboys are playing the Beijing Pandas exclusively on TikTok and there's and you just that's what's that's the world that you live in, because that's where the streaming ecosystem has somehow or another taken us. Taken us, and you can watch The Sopranos in little thirty second chunks in a corner of your screen. Like this is, this is whatever whatever world we're in right now. It's not going to get better. It's not going to be happier in the future for for you people who like sports. You're gonna if you find this frustrating, just wait.
0: Well, I want I want to push back on something you said. Uh, a moment ago, because it's interesting. This is it's it's an interesting breakdown of how how the NFL and how TV actually make money. Right. So you said uh, the NFL doesn't exist to give people the product for free to let them just watch it. But that actually is kind of why the NFL exists. Right. So the NFL exists to be broadcast uh, on broadcast channels. It's why the Super Bowl like, will remain on broadcast for as long as uh, as broadcast exists, I think. Because the whole point is to create these massive audiences that you then sell ads against. That's why the packages are valuable is because it is ad ad based. And this is this is one reason why I I think sports rights are going to become more exorbitantly expensive before they get cheaper, because all of the streamers have realized they have to shift to an ad, if not ad first, like ad heavily supported model to make their businesses work.
1: I also wonder, um, and this is sort of a tangent, but I also wonder to what extent the streaming services want to get in on the vast profusion of sports gambling advertising. And I don't know how either of you feel about sort of the sudden proliferation of sports gambling um, and the sort of emphasis on that in the broadcasts and in the advertisements. Um, I thought Matt Iglesias had a good sort of piece on this in his Substack a couple of weeks ago about. Um, how this being an experiment that's maybe not going to work out for anyone except the folks who run the gambling businesses and the people who get the revenue. But um, it seems like to a certain extent we have a meeting of the needs of the streaming services to um, not bring in not just, you know, viewers, but advertisers who are very interested in reaching those viewers and the sports gambling industry, which is expanding at a clip in a way that I find somewhat worrisome and intrusive
0: well you you uh so you this is this is an interesting topic because i spend a lot of t- i spend more time thinking about this than i probably should given that i don't do any sports gambling i i, I play poker and i'll play blackjack or craps but like i don't i don't sports gamble because i i i find it i find it baffling however it's an enormous industry and it is actually keeping this the 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 advertising uh, of sports afloat in a very real way because if you watch a if you watch a game, it's like forty percent gambling ads at this point. But I think the real uh, Alyssa, maybe this is kind of what you're hinting at. But I think the real possibility slash danger is that in the in the very near term future, when you have these smart TVs with the apps that run concurrent with the show. You are going to have an, a uh, a bet dot com uh, synchronicity. Uh, let's say opportunity. Let's describe it as an opportunity where you will get pop ups on your screen. It'll say, "Hey, you want to bet on what the next pitch is going to be? Going to be a strike or a ball? Bet now!" Yeah, and that is going to be that is going to be an enormous headache for not only regulators and customers, but just like common decency. It's a bad. This is a bad thing. And I know Peter, the libertarian, is over there shaking his head. Everyone should be able to gamble whenever they want, however they want. Go on, Peter.
2: I mean, we've talked about this before, and I'm just much less bothered by the growth of the sports gambling industry. There was a huge illegal black market uh, before this stuff uh, was sort of quasi-legal. It became sort of more legal in in more places. Um, A a lot of what's happening right now is just that that market is coming into, uh, into the visible space. Uh, and in general, I you know I I think that that vice should be broadly legal, um, and that you treat the if there are addiction problems, you treat the addiction problems just like alcohol, where a huge amount of the money is made off of the most intense consumers. And the problem isn't that alcohol is legal or that there's alcohol advertising. The problem is that some people are alcoholics, and then you treat the alcoholism rather than the advertising. Uh, alcohol advertising didn't make them alcoholics. Um, but uh, in any case, I you know I I would. <laughs> That's a that's a secondary uh, argument here. I mean, one thing to think about is that every year for the last several years we have seen these charts that show the top, usually the top fifty television programs uh, for the previous year. And one circulated within the last week or so, again on Twitter, and uh, it, and it showed once again that like forty-seven or maybe forty-nine of the top fifty shows. Uh, broadcasts last year on television were football broadcasts. And it was, and like the top 25 were all football. There's just like, as far as what lots of people watch, there's kind of nothing else. And so if the streamers are going to try and bring people in, then that, then football is, is the game, right? Is the thing, is, is the only game in town. Is the thing that they have to be focusing on because that is what people watch. And I think, you know, the question for me is just, how lo- how long does football continue its cultural dominance i don't because as somebody who doesn't watch football also doesn't gamble um i don't really understand like the the appeal of any of this i don't feel like i can i have an intuitive sense of the di- the dynamics of the appeal even though i grew up in a sports ho- household where both my brother and my father were pretty big sports watchers in particular college football and college basketball um and it just doesn't feel in any way natural to me but these things tend to eventually, if not die, they weaken. And you just look at, at at the the shape of what has happened in two media markets that we all know much more about, which is sort of uh, journalism, um, the, the magazine world and the newspaper world, but also Hollywood. Those, It's not that nobody reads newspapers at all anymore, but the market is very, very different than it was 25 years ago. It's not that nobody goes to the movies anymore, but the market and the economics are very, very different than 25 years ago and at some point that will be true for football as well it's just it's it's impossible for me to imagine that football just simply maintains a a sort of static and steady state uh, of dominance maybe football is still dominant but in a totally different way Uh, and i think in fact what you're what you're seeing with uh with the streaming deals here is that the nfl is 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 making an effort to extend its dominance into a streaming future in which the, the economics and the delivery platforms all look different. And maybe that also means uh, that you will be able to watch these things on TikTok with uh, guided gambling prompts as well.
0: Very exciting. Everyone wants guided gambling prompts. All right. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or an controversy that the NFL put a playoff game exclusively on streaming? Peter?
2: It's not a controversy. The uh, publish uh, broadcast rights are going to evolve in the world where in a world where people are cord cutting and where streaming is the normal way to watch stuff. Melissa, it's a controversy.
0: Uh it is a it's a controversy. I'm excited for this to extend to all realms. I want I want the Oscars on Netflix. I want uh, the presidential debates on. CNN Max, I want, I want it all on streaming. Let's, we're gonna, I finally cut the cord. Everybody else is gonna have to too.
2: So take that. Tra- Welcome Travis, to my hell.
1: Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift's wedding will break into all you know channels and live streams simultaneously. You will be forced to watch it.
2: We'll That's be able so to fun. watch it from, uh, like, like from her perspective, from Taylor Swift's perspective, on the new Apple Vision Pro. That's what I'm excited about. gonna be Google we're Glass. Be in the middle of the wedding. You can watch a wedding, or you can ha- have somebody else's.
0: Just don't do it at a coffee shop without letting them know. All right, uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode this week on action god Jason Statham. He's the last of the standalone action stars. I think you could make that case. I certainly have, and we'll probably do that more on Friday. All right, speaking of whom. On to the main event, The Beekeeper. All right, the setup for The Beekeeper is delightfully simple. Jason Statham, I'm not even going to tell you his character name, doesn't matter. Jason Statham rents space on a farm from Eloise Parker, who's played by Felicia Rashad, uh, where he keeps his bees. He's got some bees, he's keeping them. One day, Eloise loses her retirement and millions held by a charity she runs to scammers, running a fishing pH operation. Uh, leading her to commit suicide. Turns out that Jason Statham is, get this, a retired special ops agent. And he uses his skills, his very special set of skills, to get revenge on the scam artists. He blows up their call center. And he chucks their leader off a bridge because he tied him to a truck and the truck goes running off the bridge and he goes flying into the water. It's wonderful. He marches Sherman style on Boston. He's just going to kill everybody involved with this thing. It's a delight. Turns out the scam goes higher than anyone could possibly imagine we'll get spoilers in a minute. If you want to turn off uh, the show now cuz you're worried about being spoiled, spoiled for The Beekeeper, I would uh, go ahead and do that, but you know, we'll we'll get there. Um I just want to talk about the vibes of this movie before we get to the the insanity of the plot. I'll let one of you guys describe what actually happens, how hot, how high the conspiracy <laughs> goes. Uh, but I I want to talk about the vibes. A handful of folks have compared this movie to the John Wick series, right? Which, you know, it makes some sense. A retired agent picks up his old tools to get revenge, et cetera, et cetera. But this has a totally different feel to it, right? The fights in this movie aren't fluid or creative like the work done by Chad Stileski and his team in the Wick Flicks. Uh, Instead, The Beekeeper calls to mind something very different. It it feels like a cross between uh, movies like Death Wish or Dirty Harry, films that are very firmly situated in a period when people felt kind of powerless to stop surging crime rates, when officials felt powerless to stop the criminals, thanks to, quote, civil rights and liberties, end quote. Uh, and then in also the mid 1980s, mid 1990s movies made by the likes of Sylvester Stallone and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And that it's a high concept action flick about an overmuscle dude who can take out whole squad squads of guys just all by himself. Uh, but he's also, you know, a decent guy, but he's also kind of quiet and stoic, uh, but he can still get off the silly one liners. Right. Um, it's it's a movie that takes itself seriously enough to be silly, but is not so stupid as to be aggravating. Um, and we can get into the various distinctions there as we go along about how far this veers from silliness into stupidity. Again, the the actual plot of this film is something else. Um, as we learn, the beekeeper uh, play Jason Statham, the beekeeper, is actually a beekeeper that is part of a super secret government program that works, get this, outside of the system to, and this is an actual line of dialogue, bring balance to the hive. You ha- There's a whole speech and it's delivered by Jeremy Irons and he should be called in to deliver all speeches in bee movies like this because he just has the most wonderful voice that exists. Um, there are so many bee puns, bee puns, bee, like bee puns, in this movie, it's great. You have hives, hornets, honey, stinging, buzzing. Wonderful. There's even a to be or not to be line. You have to dig it. Uh, the villains are as co- colorful as they are perfunctory. You have a crazy lady with a minigun. Uh, you got a tough guy with an Afrikaans accent. All movies should have a villain with a guy speaking in Afrikaans. I, I like that is the most wonderfully villainous accent that exists. Uh, you got teams of killers dressed in cowboy hats and whatever. Uh, you can imagine the costume designer just sitting down and being like, give me all the clothes. I, I want all the clothes and I will put them on different people in various combinations. Uh, there there are two Gen Z slash very young millennial villain stereotypes who are running the fishing scam uh, and for whom. Uh, We, the audience, and also Gen X god Jason Statham and also Silver Tongue Boomer Jeremy Irons all hate. They all we everybody hates these people just in different ways and with different levels of passion. Um, This is very much a movie about generational conflict, right? It's about the young preying upon the old, the old getting their revenge. You love it. You love to see it. Uh, This is a movie, The Beekeeper, that very much accomplishes what it sets out to do. That is show Jason Statham beating up people who deserve it and uh, enjoying himself while doing so. And it accomplishes accomplishes this in a very reasonable 100 minutes or so. And like I said, it kind of toes the line of being silly without being stupid, which is a hard feat to pull off. A lot of movies don't quite make it there. Uh, Peter, was your audience
2: buzzing with excitement like mine was? If by buzzing, you mean yelling loudly at the screen, hooting happily? Hooting and hollering. As, yes. Uh, there was, in fact, the guy sitting in front of me, uh, kept, like, like, kind of cackle yelling at the screen. And this was at a critic screening, I want to be clear. This was not at a, a normal audience screening. And you, that's the only way I can describe it. And then, like, shouting stuff to his friend who was sitting far away from him in theaters about how John Wick has nothing on this guy. And most of the time, I would have been incredibly annoyed... By a guy like that, but it actually fit the spirit of this movie because the spirit of this movie is this is a, a sort of a mass populist movie uh, like a, a, about a, a kind of a, a avenging angel, right? Who, who just like who stands up for the little guy and like works his way through the entire edifice of, like, shitty, scammy, terrible American society, starting with the one guy who calls the the woman who runs the farm and bilks her out of all the money, and then, and then spoilers. Spoilers, guys. It's kind of a spoiler. It's, it really is a spoiler, but this also isn't a movie with a big twist. Spoilers! It goes all the way to the president of the United States. And this to is the literal president! The literal president of the United States. And this is a really interesting bit of plotting, in part, and it it keeps the movie going. Part of what it does is it just keeps the movie going because there is an escalation to this movie, right? A bunch of these movies, like you can think about something like The Equalizer Three, which we watched six months ago with Denzel Washington, very good movie in a lot of ways, and in very similar movie in a lot of ways, right? It's just like here is a guy who's like he's got kind of a blank, got a he's a little older, uh, he's found a place where the he likes, and that place is being messed up by some really bad guys and he goes and kills them and he starts by killing a couple of guys and then he kills some more guys and then he kills some more guys but in in the equalizer there you don't have this this sense of upping of the stakes of sort of moving through layers of society and so it's just like well we're we're going to kill more and more guys from this gang and we'll we'll eventually get to the leader guy but it's they're all just kind of like like mob gang bad guys right and they're all they're all basically like of the same class and part of what makes this movie interesting is that you're that that, that it moves through the scammy uh, class structure of, uh, in America, from the little local business to that business's boss, up to the uh, the franchise in Boston, up to right then we then we're the like holding at some point company we were,
1: for the franchise
2: oh, yes the holding company we realize. Uh, That Jeremy Irons, who is not is not just there to deliver exposition, although that's mostly what he's there to do. He's also a former CIA, I think, director or certainly a bigwig in in the CIA. Formerly
0: the director of the CIA.
2: And then the 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 young twerp played by Josh Hutcherson, uh, who is running all of this, happens to be the son of the president of the United States. And so this movie just has this delightful sense of escalation.
0: All and through- also also interestingly again since we're we're tar- the 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 son uh, who is played by Josh Josh Hutcherson is running this fishing scam to fund the presidential campaign of the I mean it's like it's it's literally like this 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 is a uh, it is it is an extremely populist movie in the sense that it goes to people and it says everything you thought about the corrupt elites is mostly yeah. true and they're they're getting it all on the back of you, the little working guy.
2: And the movie manages to do this and be kind of political without in any way feeling sort of like a message movie or like it's like rubbing your face in, you know, headlines. It's just doesn't it doesn't feel Ripped from the headlines, I think if you wanted to, you could probably like squeeze that. Well, maybe it's Trump's son's kind of metaphor out of this, but not really like it's not. There's there's like the movie does a a good job of delivering just enough sort of populist, uh, you know, mad at elites valence to get its point across. While also not delivering so much information that you're like, well, you're just making a movie that's an op-ed about this, uh, and I've read yeah. that op-ed before, and I I, I didn't want to watch it as a movie. And that's that's really a, a tricky thing to do, I think, even more than the balance of the tone that you talked about, Sonny, which the movie mostly gets right. The the bit with the be- the former the current beekeeper, I think, <laughs> and the minigun. The current beekeeper and the minigun in the gas station is a little bit cartoonish and ridiculous. Uh,
0: that scene, that scene... I'm sorry, Alyssa. Enjoyable. I'm, we're, we're but... about, I, that scene feels like it is parachuted in almost from a different movie. Yes. Like, even just structurally, it, it it is very much... It's bracketed by these two... It's bracketed by two shots of Jeremy Irons talking to the current CIA director, in which he says, we need to call in the beekeepers to stop this beekeeper. And she's like, okay... And then there's this uh, totally self-contained action set piece that has really nothing else to do with the rest of the movie. And then there's another call with Jeremy Irons in the CIA director where she's like they they couldn't stop him and they're not going to do anything else. Bye. And like it's like it's like this is a note someone put in it was like we need an action beat at minute 38. It was like all right, here you go.
2: Or we need to take care of like what's the current CIA say about it? Like it's it, it's a little bit of an odd bit. It's apparently it was one of the first things they shot. I've read an interview with David Ayer who was like, yeah, I was, we didn't have enough time for that one. I wasn't quite sure how it was going to work. I was happy with it. He says he's happy with it at the end. Of course. But it, like it was like he he said that was the point. That was the the opening action sequence that they shot. And they were still sort of finding their legs. And I, I do think you can see that in the movie. Yes. But uh, but no, it's it is an interestingly kind of kind of political film, political enough while also being. Just a very satisfying action romp, and uh, what it actually reminded me of action wise, and I'll I'll let Alyssa talk after this, but um, was just was the uh, uh, the Bob Odenkirk movie Nobody because it's all of these like it instead of being these big fluid like sort of like knock down the dominoes type sequences where all of the stuff sort of happens in long takes and they're sort of it's super elaborate. Instead, it's it's a bunch of uh wily e. coyote type gags. And that's that's the other thing that makes this movie work very well, is that the gags are really good and considered. He's not just constantly doing the same thing to the bad guys. It's not just a karate chop to the neck every time or shooting them in the face. More shooting them in the face, more shooting right? It's not just that. It's like every single sequence has a, I guess I've never seen a guy kill six SWAT dudes with an elevator before. And I haven't. And this movie shows you a lot of stuff like that. Uh, that is actually like somebody thought about these beats and st- someone thought about these gags and it's it's creative in that way in a way that I appreciate it.
0: All right, Alyssa, I I am curious what you make of the politics of this because it is it is fa- it, again it's it's not it's not partisan, uh, and it's not even really political. It just it it has a it has a vibe to it. It's I, it's I a cultural
1: critique, it. and um, what it reminded me most of is sort of it's a critique of sort of very of. Have you guys heard of the idea of sort of like grind set culture? Or yes. Like- yeah. Okay. So it's very much a critique of like grind set and hustle culture, where, um, you know, because these early scenes in the call centers are are long, like they're fairly extended, and um, they are these weird sort of self-contained self-cont- rooms with this sort of elaborate lighting, where people are like conditioned out of their morals, right? Where the only thing that matters is sort of landing the scam. The people that you're uh, getting one over on are, you know, sort of like they're idiots. You're like the smart, savvy one for sort of disregarding the law, being willing to take advantage of their stupidity. And all that matters is like the number, right? All that matters is, you know, the like the cash that you're raking in sort of totally irrespective of where it comes from there is this you know sort of vibe of consumption and self-congratulation and what J- what Jason Statham brings to these rooms each time he sort of enters one is not just sort of like a violent ending to the operation but a reminder of the moral order right he shows up in each of these call centers and is like repeat after me like i will i forget exactly what he says it's like i will not <laughs> I steal from like the weak and you know and powerless yeah. it's like i will he's like This environment and this mindset that you've gotten yourself into is corrupt and weird and don't do it again. It is like it is a reminder that sort of sincerity and honesty and basic moral values are the superior way to live your life. And
2: that's such an Alyssa take, but it's very true.
0: No, it's it's totally right. It's it's totally right.
1: Right. And I mean, so much of what is funny about the movie is the sort of, you know, absurdity of the consumptive ethics of the villains, right? So, you know, you have Josh Hutcherson's like, you know, political fail-son character like skateboarding around the office and like ordering expensive smoothies and checking that like the, you know, the right grade of fish has been brought into his, you know, flown into his sushi bar and, you know, like inspecting the Tibetan singing bowls that have been imported. And um, you know, it's there's very much like a sort of that stuff is all treated as if it's very funny, which it is. And the thing is, like, excellent sushi and, you know, like, spas and smoothies. Like, Erewhon, this, like, raw food restaurant in L.A., um, that's become, like, insanely popular. All of this stuff can be cool, given the right valence, but all sort of clutched together. um, It becomes sort of ridiculous evidence of kind of lack of taste and discernment and inability to sort of juxtapose things that are kind of like appropriate and tasteful, right? And this is sort of echoed again in the party at the president's like, you know, Biltmore estate or whatever in, you know, what sort of looks like Newport where, you know, these garish ice sculptures and like, you know, sort of weird costumes. I mean, there was part of me that was like, I just want to know what the presidential pool report for this weekend is like. (laughs) after everything goes to hell but um yeah it's it's an attack on sort of a vulgarity of manners and taste um in a way that is carried out with a lot of sort of good humor and um sort of amusement but there is an element of just wrath and exasperation in this that is interesting and renders it sort of a cut above even some of other the other like Jason Statham goes on a rampage movies. Um, yeah, I do sure. I do agree. I think the sequence with the other beekeeper, it just feels tonally really off relative to the rest of the movie. And I did I like I enjoy a villainous South, South African accent, but at the same time, like th- that sort of gang of just sort of very cartoonishly styled baddies was a little weird. I don't <laughs> know. I
2: mean,
0: it was. It was
1: weird. I agree. I'm not sure totally. Yeah.
2: It was weird, but but let, I, I, but let so, me defend it just a little bit very quickly because the whole there's that whole Jeremy Irons speech that is incredible where he's talking to the tier one operators and he calls them a word that I'm not going to say on this podcast. But it's just like you like he's like he's talking to the toughest guys in the special forces. And he's like the beekeeper makes you look like absolute worthless weaklings. Doesn't say that precisely. And it's very funny but it's also there to set us up that like you need something way beyond what the US government can offer. You need yeah. something that is not of this world, something cartoony, and it actually goes a long way towards making the ridiculousness of the uh, of some of the bad guy characters work because we are meant to understand that the beekeeper cannot be contained by even normal extraordinary means. You got to go you got to go to the South Africaner uh, accent weirdo with the one leg. Uh, the, um, Alyssa,
0: one, one thing you mentioned the the call centers, because I, I think those sequences are great, but they also, what they called to mind was, uh, it's like a version of the Wolf of Wall Street where everybody gets to punch Jordan Belfort in the face afterwards. like Repeatedly. It, yeah. It's, it's like, it's like, again, it's like, it's like one of the critiques of the Wolf of Wall Street. One of, one of the sillier critiques of the Wolf of Wall Street was people couldn't tell that was pro-Jordan Belfort or anti-Jordan, right? They're like, oh, this movie is glorifying the scammy stock guys of the 80s and blah. And like the, the uh, Scorsese couldn't have been any clearer about how much loathing he has for these people and like how the movie is shot and framed and, and all that. But like, whatever, some people couldn't understand it. This is for the people who could not understand that movie. This is for the this is for I will as you say Jason Statham like shows up at these at these places and makes them like put up their hands and do like a boy scout oath and say I will stop hunting the I will stop preying upon the weak and the 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 poor and the elderly and I will never commit crimes again and I'll be a good boy. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and it's I mean it's um and I think it works in part because the movie has so firmly established that that kind of Sort of morality is just is alien, right? Like instead of seeming, you know, and and when backed up by like the you know absolute murderous force of Jason Statham, it doesn't seem corny, right? It's like, oh, okay, yes, I will do that. Like on my honor, I will try. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it's just I, this was a movie where I was sort of like, okay, I'll do this. The guys want to do this, but I, I just really enjoyed it. It's funny, um, and as as we'll talk about on the bonus, I think like jason statham is an excellent combination of just physically lethal seeming and quite a gifted comic actor and um it's what makes him so enjoyable to watch and the fact that this movie is really optimized for that um makes the movie as a whole work quite well
0: yeah uh, all right so what do we think thumbs down or uh thumbs up on the keyboard, peter Thumbs
2: up. I think it is my favorite David Ayer film, and it's uh, one of the better. It's uh, like a top twenty-five percent Statham movie.
0: Alyssa,
1: uh, yeah, thumbs up. It's like fun watching that guy murder people.
0: Thumbs up. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a I'm gonna put a sheet of paper on my wall that has a running top ten list, and I just so I don't forget about this movie at the end of the year, because I I have a hard time believing. There will be 10 films better than The Beekeeper was released this year. We'll see. We'll see. But early frontrunner for number one on my spot of the best movies of the year, David Ayer and Jason Statham's The Beekeeper. All right. That is it for today's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends, a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow we will die. <coughs> if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at SunnyBunch. I'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday!